just say another welcome to you. It is good to be together. And uh, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles if you've brought one. Um, and to open them to Psalm 132. I'm going to read the whole of the psalm in just a moment or two. But I want to just remind you before we get into that. Of course, it's always worth reminding you that um, as the Church of God, we don't merely gather in this way. We also look, uh, are seeking to be a people who enjoy friendship and community together, as was uh, Christ's intention for his church. And the, way, the primary way we do that is through our home groups, life groups. And um, if you're new to the church or have disconnected from a group, we really strongly want to encourage you. This is a time to reconnect and to um, find a a group that works and that you can uh, be a part of in a meaningful way. So if you're interested in that, just um, get in touch. You can email um, the church, info at grace.london, and and we'll be sure to um, connect you with the group whenever we can. Well, I want to read to you then from Psalm 132. And we'll just briefly make a few remarks on the way through uh, this psalm, just to try and help you understand the shape of it, as it's a bit longer than the other psalms we've been looking at. As you recall, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, 15 psalms there are, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and um, I've selected about seven or eight of those that we're looking at in these weeks, and we're drawing to the end of that series, actually, but I wanted to read to you this particular one, Psalm 132. These psalms that were given as God's people were worshipping in Jerusalem, gathering the streams of Israelites going up to the temple to worship would sing these very songs at these festal moments. And it begins in this way, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This is evidently written after David's life, probably not long after, reflecting on the burning passion of that man who was king and his particular desire to build the temple. Prior to that, they'd had a tabernacle, this mobile tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant and the altar where the sacrifices took place. And the psalmist is reflecting on how David burned with a desire to build a temple. Then he says, Behold, verse 6, Behold, we've heard of it in Ephrathah. We've found it in the fields of Jah. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So it seems perhaps that now the temple has been built. This could be during Solomon's reign that it was written. Then he says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed. So here is the psalmist, and the people of God are reflecting on David's desire and the construction of the temple. And now gives birth to prayer. Lord, now that we have this temple, do these things for us. And then we begin to hear God's answer. It says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. It's a promise to do with the coming Messiah. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. 
There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. That second half of the psalm is in many ways a corresponding answer to the first half. The first half is all about desire. The desire of David, the desire of God's people in prayer, and then God answers in the way that he does in these verses. Now, I want to think with you today about the theme of passion in the Christian life. What is the place of passion in the Christian life? What is the need for it? And you actually, in answer, asking that question, we're stepping into something of a discussion in the wider Christian world. Because there are, on the one hand, those who would decry an overemphasis on emotion within Christian faith as emotionalism. And I have a lot of sympathy with that. What they mean is that it's possible to have a Christian faith which is all froth and all passion and emotion but lacks substance. And it's possible also for the church of God to be manipulated in that way and led in that way and encouraged in that way so to only develop um, a kind of emotion and passion in a way that lacks depth, in a way that lacks solidity, in a way that perhaps lacks any robustness and strength that can withstand trials and challenges and you know what it is you and I have much sympathy with this critique the problem with emotionalism because you and I we've we've gone through all kinds of passions in our lives right back to when you were kids things that you're excited about for a season and then they fade away when I was a child there were successive um, crazes that hit the playground year after year from like yo-yos to those Diablo things, to uh, Top Trumps, to uh, Pokemon, all these kinds of things went through season after season. And kids would get excited for a little while and then it would just sort of fade away. And sadly, that can also be a description of many people's Christian life. There's a brief burst of fire and passion and just as quickly it simmers away and turns to coldness because there was nothing, no real fuel to fuel the fire. And that is certainly one critique. When we're thinking about passion in the Christian life, We can't think of it in isolation. But the opposite is also true. That there are those who, you know, I would equally want to criticize a kind of intellectualism in the Christian life, where it is a cold formality. We know what we believe and we stoically and grimly seek to follow God and walk in the truth of the things we believe without love, without passion, without fire. And the problem, of course, is that that it falls far short of what Christ said is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't, think, I don't believe that the picture of the Christian who just stoically and dutifully is walking in faithfulness to God, but without love and fire, I don't believe that that, that that image in any way is honoring to God or fulfills the image of what discipleship is or what Christ called for within his people. The Christian life, if you ask what is it, Fundamentally, it's a life engaged with God, the living God, who burns in holiness and power and fire and awesome, transcendent glory. And these are truths that can infect the mind and captivate the mind so that you, are, you have no shortage of intellectual stimulation in seeking the knowledge of God, absolutely, But if it only stops at the mind, your Christian faith is inadequate and anemic. It also has to get into your heart. Or else it isn't really Christianity. It's something deficient. 
And therefore, when you think about that commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, with your strength, which is your body, essentially it's saying everything that you are. Every faculty of your being engaged with the love of God. Now, you may wonder why am I addressing this today, and particularly through the lens of this particular psalm. Now, listen, this is what we've been doing. The Psalms of Ascent are these 15 or so psalms that corrected maladies that develop within the people of God when they're scattered. Whenever we're separated from one another, certain types of sicknesses, spiritual sicknesses set in, be it that you can be overcome by particular sins and temptations, you can give way to fear, you can become anxious. And one of the issues that, would, that affects the people of God whenever we're scattered is that our passions, our affections, our devotion and love for the Lord certainly has a tendency to grow cold and we can become disengaged and apathetic towards the things of God. I think this is obvious when you think about why. It's because the things that you, you know, your passions, what you love, they expand and contract according to what it is you're paying attention to in life. You may have seen that film, a castaway where Tom Hanks plays the character who is in, an air, in a crash in an airplane and finds himself stranded on a little island and spends three or four years on this island and how his world shrinks down to problems like how to open a green-jacketed coconut and how to get out of it the living water that would sustain him and the fat of the flesh that would be his food. And he develops friendship with a volleyball that was also part of the wreckage of the crash that has the name Wilson on it. And so he calls it Wilson. And he becomes so attached to this volleyball that it's like his only companion on this island. And you can see how, look, this is the human mind and the human heart. The things that, we are, that are in front of us are very often the things that consume us. If we're concerned with great things and we're going about great things with our lives, our hearts and minds are consumed with those things. But the smaller our worlds become, the more narrow they become, then very often we become indifferent to the greater things. And I think this is a trend, this is a picture of what happens to Christians. Whenever we are taken out of the context of the church and out of the context of God's community and away from the experience of being among his people where Jesus says, I'm among you, I'm in your midst. Whenever we're out of this situation, what then happens is our worlds shrink down to the things that we are interested in. Be it the things that are concerned with your day-to-day life, your job and your family or your flat or your cat or whatever it is. Or perhaps the things that are Putting them, that are forcing themselves onto your attention because of what's in your, in your media feeds and the things that you pay attention to online, whatever it is. Our hearts become engaged with whatever's in front of us. This is just human nature. With the one exception, of course, that there are certain unique individuals who generally have more exceptional leadership gifts whose minds and hearts can be consumed perpetually with the purposes of God, even when they're taken out of the situation or find themselves in isolation, away from God's people. Now, the reason why I say all of that as a backdrop is because I don't know if you notice how the psalm begins. The psalm, and I really want to use these first five verses as a a lens through which we understand the whole of this psalm. The psalm begins with a recollection of the passion of just one man, of David. 
Remember, O Lord, he says in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore, how he vowed, I will not enter my house, and so on, until he built a temple. The psalm tells a story of how this passion, this urgency, this desire, this longing lived within the heart of just one individual within the nation. And then traces how that flows into the greater plans of God within God's people and God's promises that correspond with what was in David's heart. And I think it shows how It shows how your life is connected with the big picture in a sense. How it matters what what you are burning with, what you love, what you care about. Why passion matters. And I want to ask them the question, why is it that our passions are so important? And we'll try and find an answer from this psalm and the story of what was going on in David's life. The first thing I want to say to you, friends, in answer to that question is that God loves passionate hearts. He loves passionate hearts. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Now, if you know anything about David's life, you'll know that there were certain elements of his life that were not lovable. We tend to think and feel fondly about David, but at the same time, we know that he failed in many ways, really quite Enormous ways in his life. He failed as a father. One of his sons raped a half-sister. Another of his sons committed treason and rebellion and sought to overthrow David in later life. Can you imagine how damaged these children were that they would conceive such wickedness in their hearts and become so callous toward the will of God? And it shows that David failed in his role as a father to raise godly children. And you know, of course, the, the great failure of David's life, which was his failure as a husband and as a king when he committed adultery. Really, I think, a form of rape with Bathsheba. And then, upon discovering that she was pregnant, arranged for her husband to be slaughtered on a battlefield by putting him on the front lines in the assault of a city. All the while, David's in the comfort of his own palace in Jerusalem. What you're looking at when you look at the life of David is a mixed man, a mixed man, a man who has actually in many ways indulged elements of corruption in his own reign. And this is true, and the the Bible's honest about this. We do, of course, see with that the desire for repentance in David's life, how he acknowledged his wrong. He didn't hide his wrong from God. But I'm saying all of that to you because it's then all the more amazing that we discover God's affection for David and his interest in him as a king. And you ask why? And the the answer that the Bible gives, the the phrase that's used of David in 1 Samuel 13 and also in the book of Acts much later, is he's described as the man after God's own heart. So even though he had a flawed reign, Even though he's corrupted by his own desires, even though he neglected certain responsibilities, even though he was imperfect like you and me, what distinguished David above every other man in his generation, not just when he was a king, but of course prior to him becoming king, because God selected him to be the next king, what distinguished him was that he was this man after God's own heart. 
that he embodied this image of a person who loves the living God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you see this being worked out in David's life in all kinds of ways. You see it in his role as a, in his, in his, um, his love for songwriting. You read the book of Psalms, so many of them say a psalm or a song of David. Most famously of all, of course, the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. A psalm which almost everyone has heard of at some point in their lives. It's still in the bestseller charts, you know. This is a man with tenderness and affection for God. But he's also a man with a kind of ferocity of spirit. So that when he was actually just probably just a teenager, and he heard about the standoff between the Philistines and the, and the men of Israel, the two battles facing each other for days, getting ready for battle, and how the Philistines sent their champion, Goliath, into the, into the battlefield. And every day he would stand before them and say, if anyone fights me, we'll settle it here. Just one on Man on man, which was one ancient way of settling a great battle. And David hears of it. All his brothers are in the army. He's just a shepherd back at home. And how he travels to them, he brings them supplies. He brings them cheese and food and all these things. And he hears about what's going on on the battlefield. How this giant over nine foot tall is challenging the armies of God. And how no one has the courage within them to confront this giant. And what does David say? He says in 1 Samuel 17... If I can find the verse, in verse 26, it says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David has within his heart, in other words, a zeal for the glory of God that he sees it as a blasphemy and an affront that that giant on the battlefield should defy the holy army of God, the men of Israel, and that no one is courageous enough to confront him. And so you see these contrasting pictures of this man, a songwriter with a tenderness and a softness of spirit, but he's, he's no sort of, you know, he's not a boy band member because he's also a, a soldier, hardened, with a, a ferocious, violent spirit ready to go do battle. And I, the, you ask, what, what is it that drew all these characteristics together within this man? And the answer is he was a man of passion. And the all-consuming passion which guided his life was his love for the living God. The love that was expressed through his songwriting, that was also expressed on the battlefield. And now, as the psalm is telling us, culminated in this life project the kind of pinnacle of his desire and vision and longing for his life, that he would glorify God by building a house that's worthy of him. It all begins with this man's passion. And what's so interesting about the way the psalmist tells us this is he highlights the fact that David's passion caused him to suffer. He says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. It's an interesting thing that 
The things that you most desire in life will cause you the most suffering. The things you most love in life are the things that most expose you to hurt. It's true in the era of human love, isn't it? That the more attached we become to people, those we love around us, the more vulnerable we are to hurt when those relationships break down or when someone is sick and dies. Have you ever felt the pain of unrequited love, of loving someone ferociously and then of that love not being returned? Or of divorce and how a person's life can be shattered and broken when they experience the rejection by someone they love? You're more vulnerable and exposed to pain in the areas of life where you feel passion and love than you are the areas that you're indifferent to. David, it says, endured hardships because of what he loved. What it does, listen, what this evokes in our minds is a contrast, you see. That there are on the one hand those who are apathetic, passionless. And to be apathetic means that you're not exposed to this sort of pain. You go through life neither experiencing the highs nor the lows. Simply indifferent. Simply unflappable, unwavering, calm, and passionless. That's apathy. It means without feeling, without pathos. And of course, that's certainly the way many people live their Christian life. They're not particularly grieved by the state of the church in our nation because they wouldn't really love the church in the first place. They're not particularly grieved by the many people in our city who don't know God and have never experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life because they, haven't, they don't burn with the love for Jesus themselves. What a tragic picture of someone who is supposed to be a Christian that this so often characterizes spiritual life that we can be pathos, without feeling, apathetic. On the other hand, of course, there is this picture, and I think this is what the Psalms evoking in our minds, of someone who burns with the zeal for the glory of God as David did, Remember, O Lord. Remember him with favor, all the sufferings he endured. What were these sufferings? It was the grief of an unfulfilled desire and longing for God's glory. The sadness at seeing spiritual apathy in the nation, of longing to see something established in the heart of the nation that will grip the hearts of God's people and draw them into passionate love and worship. This is, the, this is what happens when you, when you desire the things of God above all in your life. You begin to experience new depths of love and emotion and heartbreak also where you see the deficiencies in the church of God or the brokenness in the world. You're exposed to a kind of suffering that you must endure in life that is described here as being true of David. That he was no indifferent king. He was no king who just sat on his throne in, in just sheer self-indulgence. His guiding passion and desire was God be glorified in our nation. And this is true of every man and woman of God in Scripture. Those standout characters who really shake 
the scene around them are those who feel most deeply and suffer the most because of their passions. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Nehemiah, how we find him in the first chapter of Nehemiah, weeping over the state of Jerusalem in prayer and fasting for days as he casts ashes on himself and grieves that Jerusalem is, in, is a rubble, broken down, demolished city. When, he, when you love something, you're exposed to this suffering. It's true of the prophets. I find the prophets the hardest books in the Bible to read, mainly because they're so pervaded by this grief and in, in, enduring hardship and suffering. Most of the books of the prophets, when, they, when they're not depicting the glorious future that God promises, are grieving the inadequacy of the passions of God's people and how they've wandered away from him into backsliddenness and a state of inadequacy and sin and, and wandering from God and rebellion. And these men were uniquely exposed, I think, to a type of suffering that comes through loving God. You care and then you grieve. And you grieve because you care. The two are inseparable. You see it in the life of our Lord. How he wept over Jerusalem. How he felt the bowels of compassion as it's put. The urgency to see broken lives set straight because he cannot stand to see people estranged from God and walking in brokenness. And he knew that all they needed was to know the Father's love and how that brought him to the cross. How for the joy, it says, that was set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, he went through the pain of the cross because of what he zealously longed for, which was the restoration of a people who know God and are filled with his love. You see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. The hardships that he endured. A life of, of difficulty and of suffering. And why? Well, simply because of his zeal for Jesus. Because he loves Jesus, he suffers. He endures hardship. It's the same pattern that you're seeing described here in the life of David that is true of all God's people who love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. God loves passionate hearts. Because passionate hearts are those who are filled with a fire for the glory of God. And yes, it exposes you to unique sufferings in life. Because we are far from heaven. But God loves such hearts. David, a man after God's own heart. Now I want to bring you to a second thought here, which is that God also creates passionate hearts. You ask yourself this question, where did this desire originate within David? And of course, subjectively, I think his answer would have been, well, it's, it just grew up within, within me, within my own imagination and my desire and my dreams as I thought about what was needed. God needs a temple, a bricks and mortar temple. But I think that's actually an inadequate answer. I believe that the desires like this, these spiritual desires are always implanted into us by the Spirit of God himself. And this can certainly be seen to be true of David. And the reason why I say that, think about David. Think about this from his point of view. The psalmist begins by telling us that he had this vision, this dream of building this temple for God. Where did it come from? Of course, from David's narrow, short-sighted perspective, it comes from just a longing to bless the Father. 
and give, build a house that's worthy of his name. We understand that. But what David could not have understood was the scope and the plan of God in history, the cosmic plan of God as it related to this action of his in time and in space. This is the thing about human desire. We, we don't know the consequences of our desires and the actions that they give birth to or the way in which these things fit with the great plan of God in history. You think about this just on a human level. You know, the story of how the city of Rome was founded by Romulus, who murdered, murdered his brother Remus. And how in about 750 BC, he, he began this little, founded this little city. No doubt just a few buildings and a small population to begin with. Could he have known how that desire that was a seed within his own heart would give birth to the transformation of planet Earth through what became the most influential city and remains? Its influence still ripples on into our day and age. Could he have known the connection between his desire with the spark of his desire and what would happen as a result of it? No, of course not. Of course not. The same is true for so many things that are accomplished in human history. Think about Edison. How in the late 1800s, he labored over creating the incandescent light bulb and how that light bulb has changed the world. Could he have known the impact that that invention would have? No, of course not. He just had a burning desire to create this thing. And once he created it, this, the humble light bulb, the world would never be the same again. We, we can't possibly know the connection between the things that we long for at the microscopic level down here in the dirt and grub of our lives and the things that God sovereignly ordains that will take place in the course of history. We, we can't understand these connections, can we? And I don't think David understood it either. But what we can begin to then see is that what David was was a small cog in the great plan of God, spoken, uttered first in the Garden of Eden, and coming to full fruition in the, in the book of Revelation, how God's plan is to inhabit the earth with his glory, to, break, to turn the whole earth into the temple of his glory, where he lives and dwells with humanity. David was one step along that road. Why am I telling you this? Because... It just underlines this truth, friends, that God accomplishes his cosmic plans in this world through individuals whose desires align with his and whose lives, therefore, are an outworking of his desires. God is an architect. When an architect constructs a great building, goes about planning it right down to the level of every material and detail of that building. They will commission craftsmen to build certain elements of it, stonemasons and carpenters and steel workers and so on. And no one of those craftsmen necessarily needs to even know what he's making. The architect knows. And it's the same way that God works in your life and in mine. God puts within us desires that give birth to a life that is lived for him. We cannot see the end from the beginning. We can't understand the fullness of God's plans and his cosmic 
sovereign, ordained plans in history. But they begin, the plans begin with the desires that he implants in us, just as he did in David, and how David then suffered to do and to accomplish what he, to seek to accomplish what he wanted for God's glory on earth. How does this happen? It's a mystery, isn't it? How our desires align with the plans of God. But I say that they, it begins with the reaction of God upon you. How God by, moves by His Spirit in the hearts of individuals to begin to provoke within them a desire to do something for God and a burning urgency that, that their life must, do, must live, be lived in service of Him. The Spirit moves in you. The action of God and His sovereignty providentially puts you in a certain place and a certain time in history with certain gifts and certain opportunities that are unique to you. There is no one like you. David certainly found himself at just such a moment. But no less true for you and me. God knows the details of every one of our lives. This is the action of God upon us. But friends, it has to be met with. The responsiveness of the human heart that longs to live a life for his glory. This is why I opened the service reading to you these first verses from Romans chapter 12. Where Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is the duty of man? To bow down. To give yourself unreservedly to God. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And there we see what happens. When a life is offered to God entirely, what happens? God begins to reshape your mind and your imagination. You begin to understand what the will of God is. Not just for you as an individual, but the will of God in His purposes in the world. And then God puts you to work. When you understand His will, when your life is on the altar, then you become effective in the accomplishment of doing things for Him. God creates these passions in our hearts. This brings me to my last point. God then honors these passions. He honors them. Now this is where we can pay attention to what is happening in the psalm as a whole. Now at first, when we look at the life of David, it doesn't seem to be true that God honors his desire. If you know the story, David burned with this overriding desire to build a temple. And what does God say to him? He says, no, you can't. The reason was, he said that David was a man of war. He said, well, your son who builds a temple, a man of peace. And so he has a son named Solomon, which of course is derived from shalom, the word for peace. David's era of warfare gives way to an era of peace. And then Solomon gets to build the temple and not David. But look at, look at the way the psalm shows us the ripple effects of what began as a desire in David's heart. You see how I've shown you in these first five verses how it begins as this burning desire, the zeal for the glory of God that causes David agony and suffering in his life. Unfulfilled longing. But then as the psalm progresses, you see what then happens is it gives birth to prayer within the people of God. What was a desire within one man, the king, becomes a longing within the wider nation. And look at what they pray for. 
I just want you to understand, friend, this is the, very often the legacy of a life that's lived for God. It's not that you necessarily get to see all that God has put in your heart. So many of the stories in Scripture, is, uh, in scripture of men, men and women who desire to see something but never really saw it through to full fruition. You think of Abraham, how he was promised a land and he never really inherited the land of Canaan. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ, promised the bride, and how in his dying breath, all his disciples abandoned him. But what happens, of course, is that the desires that begin within individuals like this begin to grip others. And this is what we see in the psalm. What was David's passion becomes the prayer of the nation. And you see this in verse 8 to 10. Look at what it is. Pay attention to what they pray for. They pray, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So they pray, first of all, for God's presence among them, which, of course, what the temple was for. They know that if God is not with us, then we are nothing. God, come and inhabit your temple. Come and be among your people. Come and fill us with your presence. The same prayer we pray today, isn't it, as the church of God, Spirit of God, fill your temple. And they pray, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Which is a prayer for salvation. They're asking that God would cleanse them as a nation. And they pray, let your saints shout for joy, which is the response of a people who are enjoying the presence of God and the salvation of God. Our response is happiness and joy, knowing that we're saved by God. And then they pray this. They say, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one, your Messiah. The Messiah would come almost a thousand years after David. Now, what you then see in the rest of this psalm is how these very desires, the spark in David that becomes the desires within God's people of prayer is answered by the promises of God. How he says, particularly think, pick up from verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. They ask for God's presence and God says, I'm going to dwell among you. They ask for salvation. salvation, And then God says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I'll satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. God says, you want to be a pure and holy people, enjoying my salvation, I will do that for you. They ask for joy, and he says in the second half of verse 16, and her saints will shout for joy. And they ask for a Messiah in the line of David to sit on his throne, and this is what God says in these last two verses. He says, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. The horn was a symbol of power. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, my Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Friends, can you see the connections here? What begins as a spark within one man becomes a passion of the prayers of God's people and then is answered by the promises of God that have relevance on a cosmic, eternal scale. 
the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come a thousand years later to take his place and to begin to fill the earth with the glory of God so that he will dwell among his people, the church of God, the new temple, giving us salvation and filling us with joy. Everything that they pray for comes true and is coming true. Of course, you go back to the desire of David, and you know this. God put it within him in the first place because he wanted to do all those things. Now, why am I saying this to you, friends? Because... I understand you may have grown somewhat cold, distracted or disillusioned or dismayed during the course of this year. And if not this year, we all go through such seasons in our lives. And I know for myself that I've felt tempted to dismay as I've seen our own church fragmented. What has been a labor of love to pastor and form a church here with the work of many others, seeing that interrupted and seeing lives detach themselves from the church body. People walk away in grief or in upset or in annoyance or in whatever has happened or just sheer apathy and coldness to God. All these things are true and how, you know, I I understand this is the malady that happens when we're apart, right? What this psalm gives us is a perspective, friends. God's work always, though it is a great work that is happening on a universal scale, it always connects down to the individuals, to you and to me. The desires that God implants within our hearts, the prayers that flow from those desires, and the vows and the sacrifices that we make never diminish in your own mind the importance of your life being lived for the glory of God and of your heart being inflamed with passion for him. What I'm wanting to do today, friends, is to invite you to search your heart and to come to God again Is the Spirit breathing on you? Is He awakening a love that you've lost? Are you conscious of a diminished vision? That you don't love the church as you should, or you don't love Christ as you should? Or that you've simply lost heart or grown hopeless? Oh, brother and sister. The Lord wants to breathe upon you in a fresh way and help you to understand nothing we do is wasted for God. Even our longings are not wasted. Even if they're not fulfilled in our own lifetimes, they're not wasted. God wants a passionate people. He wants burning hearts. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to give you thanks, first of all, 
there is something mind-boggling and breathtaking when we contemplate the reality of your great plan in history whispered in the earliest pages of the Bible, taking form in the history of Israel under the rule of men like David and coming to fulfillment through the coming of your son and the establishment of your church and the promises of God to be among his people and to fill the earth with your glory. Father, we confess that we have a tendency to become myopic and obsessed with relatively unimportant things and forget your work and what you are accomplishing in history. Father, we confess this and ask you to forgive us and pray, Lord, that you will captivate us again with the reality of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ the greater David. How it says in the psalm, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I'll set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. We praise you, Lord, that all these promises have come to completion and fulfillment in the sovereign reign of the Lord Jesus Christ who is at your right hand and who is now calling for allegiance who is now calling for submission and devotion and for love and I pray Father would you be pleased to send the Spirit of God upon us to awaken again dead hearts and cold hearts I pray for those among us who are not Christians Lord help them to understand the bigness of what you want to do in this world that it's not just about me and my spirituality but it's about the will of God as it's being worked out on planet earth and the invitation to be part of that forgive us Lord who are your sons and daughters that we so easily forget these things fill our hearts fill our prayers fill our labor we pray that we might work for you. In Jesus' name, amen.